1: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
0: Hello, Raider Nation, and welcome to another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast, Believe
1: Podcast Network. I'm Dennis Sackerman.
0: As always, pleased to be joined by former Raider great, my partner, Stanford Rout. Stan, how we doing?
1: what's going on man Uh, happy to be back on with you man we are about to start preseason games tonight on uh nfl college season is going to be starting up in a couple weeks my team right now the high school we got our first scrimmage tomorrow so i'm always loving this time of the year still in the little area where it's still leo season if you're in the zodiac sign so i'm really loving it
0: (laughs) everybody's optimistic about their team heading into the season And the Raiders kick off preseason Saturday at home with fans. So even though it's an exhibition game, you know, Allegiant Stadium is going to be an electric atmosphere as a silver and black. Welcome to Seattle Seahawks. Stan, you know how much the ticket prices are going for, for an exhibition game on the secondary market?
1: Oh, uh, I would imagine for Allegiant Stadium, Las Vegas, you got that West Coast tax. I would imagine that. I don't know. I don't know the, the, uh, the exact, idolatry amount. I don't know that, but I would imagine it is probably more on the scale of expensive rather than it being cheap.
0: $268. Sounds about right. Yeah. It's the most expensive NFL preseason ticket on record, according to Tick Pick. The next most expensive ticket this weekend is the New England Patriots at the Washington football team. That one's just under a hundred bucks. And you know what the great thing is, Dan? We know there's going to be football now every weekend up until the Super Bowl, which is in L.A., and that's February the 13th. It's a good feeling. No, It's like knowing an old friend is back. You know, we all say, yeah. hey, <laughs> welcome back.
1: Welcome home. <laughs> Definitely. I think that obviously we all – We all suffered from no fans last year. Definitely a different type of feeling, even from players that I talked to. Like, I remember we'd have certain games where, I'm sorry, certain times where we would have in training camp, where we would have a practice at the Oakland Raider Coliseum, and obviously it would be pretty empty, things like that. So it's some version of that from what I talked to with players last year, where you're in an entire stadium and there's no fans. You can hear everything that the quarterback is saying in its cadence and things like that, which is different for a defensive player and probably for certain offensive players. So going back to some sense of normalcy, obviously, we got this Delta variant that's sweeping through the country. I think that now we're getting back to some sense of normalcy and that's actually giving us a lot of calm type of feeling, the nostalgic type of feeling, because whenever you can get back to what you're comfortable with, what's your, what's your norm, what you usually do, your routine, that obviously is going to go ahead and uh, allow cooler heads to prevail. Well, the Raiders are two and a half point favorites. And if
0: you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you should go to win money today. If you're a football bettor, there are tons of futures and props you can wager on as well. BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next tip-off, face-off, or pitch, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sports book experts well Stan earlier this week the Raiders released their first depth chart and to me the only real surprise came on defense Tanner Muse, a third round pick last year who missed all of the 2020 season he's actually penciled in as the starting Sam linebacker I mean there was so much talk in the offseason about what Muse's future was with the Raiders and now here he is listed as a starter I mean here's a guy who won two national titles with the Clemson Tigers a hybrid-type player in college, and then last year the Raiders drafted him with the intention of moving him to full-time linebacker. Unfortunately, got hurt, suffered a foot injury, and was placed on the injured reserve before the season began. Stan, uh, your thoughts on Muse listed as a starter?
1: Hey, listen, we all know that obviously with him uh, having success in college, things like that, the big stage will not be something that's going to completely overwhelm him. I'm all about expectations. I'm all about opportunities. I'm all about making the most of those opportunities and exceeding people's expectations. So if that's what they got penciled in as a starter, who am I to sit up here and, bo- and poo poo it or say that, oh, you know, that they got to have somebody else as a starter, something like that. I hope that everything uh, works out for him. I hope that he goes and he makes sure that he is a stud on the football field. He is a student of the game. And I'm always going to go ahead and try to uh, see it as that glass half empty rather than, I'm sorry, half full rather than uh, half empty.
0: In case you're wondering, Nicholas Morrow and Corey Littleton are the other two starting linebackers. Stan, I know we've talked about this in perhaps other sports. You see it where maybe he's starting so they can showcase him. and Possibly move him because you also have Nick Kwiatkowski. They Mm -hmm. also drafted a couple of players who they want to uh, transition from safety to linebacker, so they appear to have a glutton players at linebacker could they
1: perhaps be showcasing him to move him that also could be very well a, uh, an, a possibility and i think that no matter what uh no matter whether they're just starting you to showcase you so they can move you or they're starting you because they think that you're the best guy for the job and you can be a cornerstone for the team going forward no matter what you still have to make sure that you go out there and put your best foot forward because if they're doing that to showcase you then you want to make sure that another team is going to see oh man I really love the way that guy is playing let me go ahead and offer the Raiders a third round pick for this guy and then as soon as you come into their building they like you so much they go ahead and they want to at an earlier time go ahead and offer you a contract extension to go ahead and lock you up for years down the line. Or if the Raiders believe that he is the best guy for the job, he's going to be a cornerstone for this franchise. You want to reward them by actually putting good tape out there on the football field and being exactly that cornerstone that they hope that you can be. And that way now they do not have to look to go ahead and replenish that need that needs to be filled in the upcoming draft in 2022 or 2023, things like that. So no matter what the reasoning is, why a team puts you out there as the starter, no matter what reason, you still have no reason to not put your best foot forward, depending on whatever the mindset or ideology that they may have.
0: We only have three preseason games now because we added a 17th, Yes. Uh, regular season game. I mean, how much can a guy really make or showcase in preseason when it's so limited because you've got 90 guys you're trying to look at? So how much can a guy really showcase what he has?
1: It really depends on the position. It depends on how much playing time you get within the preseason. There's a lot of there's several factors, but, all, but I can tell you like this. There's so much more riding on how you practice than games for certain positions, because if it's a deep position where they wanna get everybody playing time, where you might get a quarter at best to go out there and showcase your abilities, well, practice then becomes that much more paramount. So I think that within three games, within those three weeks, the preparation, the game, the practice, things like that. Teams, it does not take a team long to know what they have in a guy, it really does not. If a team needs four games to evaluate all of their players and figure out who's gonna stick, who are we gonna get rid of, who's gonna be the starter, what have you, then that team probably is not gonna be good anyways because that means they don't have a good coaching staff and able to be able to, be, uh, be able to evaluate their players. You can talk to many guys and they'll tell you really, for the starters all they need is about maybe a game a game and a half to go ahead and get back in the swing of things as far as getting their timing down for the younger players the first round picks the second round picks you already know that they have ability that's why you draft them in the first or second damn round so you just want to make sure that okay is the moment too big for them and are they able to go ahead and process the information is their preparation approach to the game gonna be what you need it to be. And that's something more so that you realize in training camp, in practice, in meetings, things like that. So I don't think that it's gonna take a long time to go ahead and see what you have. I think that sans certain positions, certain intricate situations within the NFL, they do not need any more than really two games to be able to identify who's gonna stick. Who's gonna start? Who's gonna be a backup? Who's gonna be practice squad? Who we're gonna trade? Who we're gonna cut? Things like that.
0: Oh, you know that 18th regular season game is just right around the corner. Right? <laughs> oh man, I it's can too, tell you like it's gonna this be two exhibition games. Yes, that's it.
1: And, and and I can tell you just based on the players I've talked to, the majority of them do not like having a 17th game without having now a prorated bump in their increase of a salary rather than having all prorated over 17 games, 18 weeks. Versus what it used to be 17 weeks, 16 games. And when they go ahead and try to slide that 18th game in there, I really think you're going to see a strong pushback by the NFL PA whenever they try to do that. But yes, to your point, Dennis, they definitely are going to do that eventually. But I think it's going to be met with a stern amount of resistance.
0: Stan, the depth chart lists the Raiders' defense as a 4-3, but we know that Gus Bradley likes to play two linebackers in five in the secondary. I mentioned
1: Yeah, four, two, uh, Tanner five.
0: Muse is the Sam linebacker. Can you explain to Raider fans in simplest terms what a Sam linebacker is and their responsibilities? Ooh,
1: here we go. Are you talking about Sam linebacker in a 4-3 or are you talking about Sam linebacker in a four-two-five? Okay, explain both. How about that? Okay, here we go. In a regular 4-3 defense, uh, you have four down linemen. You have three linebackers. Obviously, you have a Sam who's on the strong side of the of the offensive formation, which will usually be to the side with the tight end, and then you have your Mike linebacker. M is in Mike, that's middle, so he's in the middle of the offensive formation. Then you have your Will linebacker, who's to the weak side, who will be to the side away from the tight end. Your Will linebacker is the one who probably is a little bit better at covering just because he's got to cover the back out of the backfield, things like that. He's got to be able to chase down a play that goes away from him and be able to go ahead and eliminate the cutback, which you see running backs like Ezekiel Elliott, Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, guys like that are great at cutting backside so your Will linebacker is probably somebody who's going to be a little bit more athletic. And your Sam linebacker, he's the one that's going to be over there taking on that, that fullback. He's going to be the one taking on the, uh, the leads whenever they want to go straight down the middle, things like that. He's got to go ahead and get off that block of the tight end, the Rob Gronkowskis of the world, who are really, really good at blocking, things like that. That's the, that's the premise of the 4-3 defense. And then you got your, you got your wide and usually a nine technique a uh, rush in defensive ends and they're there for contain. They got to get after the quarterback and then they also got to contain. Now, conversely, when you go to the four, two, five, you still have four down linemen. You now have two actual specific quote unquote linebackers, which will be a Mike and you'll have a will. Now the five DBs will be free safety, strong safety, corner, corner, but you'll have a nickel back. And so now the nickel back is more so playing the Sam linebacker position. If you want to go and be technical, but because he's a nickelback, he's a DB a la Stanford route. What I used to do many times, many years in Oakland is he's out there to guard the slot receiver whenever the offense is in a obvious passing situation. Third down, but now in today's NFL, because they fling the ball all over the field, you got, you got nickelbacks that are playing first, second and third down. So whenever the offense brings in a third receiver, which is 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end, three receivers. Whenever they bring in a third receiver, that's when a team will go to a four, two, five, AKA the nickel defense. And they will have that nickel back who basically is subbing in for the Sam linebacker. And that's the position he'll be playing to be technical, but we just call it nickel back to make it simpler for a lot of novices that want to go ahead and learn the intricacies of the game. And that nickelback is going to be lined up on the slot receiver, which will be to the strong side of the passing strength. And then you'll have your Mike linebacker in the middle, your Will over there on the backside, which will probably be in this situation to the side with the tight end. But because there's now three receivers, it's now the passing strength of the offense versus the running strength of the offense when you have your basic 4-3 defense out there.
0: And you primarily played in a 4-3 with the Raiders during your career, correct? Yes.
1: Primarily a 4-3 defense. Kansas City was 3-4, and then the Houston Texans was a 3-4.
0: Okay. How, how big of an adjustment is it from going to a 4-3 to a 3-4, or is it for a guy like you?
1: For a corner, it's not really much of a difference. I can tell you the biggest difference is it's for the offense. And I say that because from a defensive standpoint, and you look at over the years historically— It's great as Peyton Manning is, just got inducted to the Hall of Fame, obviously much deserved, along with my man, Charles Woodson, Flores, all those, Calvin Johnson played against him, man. It was just a great class that was inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. John Lynch, same way, great GM for the 49ers, stud safety for the Bucks and the Broncos, man, I can go all the way, and Troy Palomaro, man, I I can go all the way down the list with this class. I'm just so proud of them, and I'm in awe of every single one of them. So when you look at the 3-4 defense, Typically, because you have so many people standing up, it's very difficult to identify the blitzer. And for so many years, as great as Peyton Manning was, there he would struggle against 3-4 defenses because it was difficult to identify the blitzer. And so the, the, the crux of the 3-4 defense, as far as the success of it, you got to have two things. You have to have a nose guard who not can force a double team. You have to have a nose guard who can command a double team. Command one, because if you don't and that center is able to block him one on one, then those guards are able to run free and get up on those linebackers. So those inside linebackers now, they're not able to run free and flow to the ball like the way they want to. That's number 1. The deta- the d de- I'm sorry, the nose guard has to command a double team. There's no if, ands, buts about it. If he cannot command a double team, you will not have a good 3-4 defense, period. Now, number two, and this is equally as important. What really makes a 3-4 defense go, you got to have those outside linebackers who are very good at rushing the passer. I remember many years in Oakland, California, there was this team down south called the San Diego Chargers. (laughs) And they had the Sean brothers. They had Sean Merriman, they had Sean Phillips. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you this, when, especially if we were at Qualcomm Stadium, when we got to third and six, third and seven, something like that is a defense. We're watching from the sidelines. We just simply were hoping we can get the ball off. Not can we get the first down, but just can we get the ball? off? Because when those guys, when they put their hand in the dirt and they pin their ears back, you know, they are coming. And, the, and those were two of the, top, those were two of the top guys in the NFL at the time. And then a few years later, you have now Tom Lee, Justin Houston, and Kansas City. And the same thing happened with them. So when we're watching from the sidelines, it's third and six, it's third and seven, third and five, it's a passing down, not third and two. We're just hoping, oh my God, like, let's just get the ball. And then you look at Von Miller, when he comes to the different Broncos, you saw how they had him and DeMarcus Ware. So... You cannot have a good 3-4 defense. You cannot have a good defense in a 3-4 scheme without having the nose guard that can command a double team and then you got to have two outside rushers who were able to collapse the pocket on the quarterback. You can get away with one good one and then and then one other one who's serviceable. But if you really want to be effective, you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers for so many years with the steel curtain defense. You look at the New England Patriots when they won three Super Bowls out of four back in 2001, 2003, 2004, things like that you have to have a nose guard who can command a double team and you got to have outside linebackers who can get after the quarterback. But with so many people standing up, it makes a lot of quarterbacks unable to identify the blitzer. And one of the best to ever do it, the human computer himself, Peyton Manning, is one who struggled immensely, even though he had gobs of success in the NFL. I think he was like NFL MVP like five times, which is like, Never before been done. So the 3-4 defense, if you have the right pieces, oh my goodness, it is hell for the offense to go ahead and go against.
0: Stan, how many times did you play against Peyton?
1: Uh, Played against Peyton Manning twice, year three, year six. Uh, Both times I was an Oakland Raider, and he was still an Indianapolis Colt.
0: How many times at the line of scrimmage do you actually think he was changing the play when he's barking out Omaha, and how many times do you think he was going up there just barking out signals but keeping the play the same?
1: I'd probably say maybe uh, 70, 30 as far as him actually just keeping it the same uh, versus him changing it. I know that um, it was a very interesting experience, and I say that because I still remember year three, I, I, was, I was starting, but because they – stayed in 12 personnel or 11, pretty much the entire game. I think I may have saw outside corner, maybe four reps that entire game, even though I played every play because I was matched up on Dallas Clark Mm -hmm. and Anthony Gonzalez is a receiver. So I didn't really get a chance to match up much on Reggie Wayne. Uh, I forget who the other receiver was. Maybe it may, might've been Marvin Harrison. Maybe he was still playing. Those are some
0: weapons right there. Oh, Very very much. Oh my goodness.
1: So the thing is, is that, and this is what I learned, and this is the thing about football that a lot of people don't realize, especially when you're watching it on the TV, is a lot of times it looks like that offense is running 50 different plays during the game. And the one thing that i learned from watching Peyton Manning is the Colts, I think they might have run seven plays the entire game, seven different ones. Now, what they'll do is they may flip the formation. They may have a different personnel or they just simply may have a different guy running that said play but they ran about seven different concepts throughout the entire game they just like i said they flip the formation they may change the personnel they may change the look things like that they may window dress it add a little motion to go ahead and get to it just kind of confuse you a little bit but that was one thing that i realized that was one thing i learned it was very fascinating and so you look in how Peyton Manning has so much success and a lot of it in, in, in both times for the Oakland Reds, we played the Indianapolis Colts tight both times in, 0, in 07 and 2010. Now they still won the game, but Peyton Manning did not have a great game. They didn't blow us out of the water or anything like that. It was a very tight game uh, both times. I remember Kirk Morrison helped me out on the sideline where Paid Manning would lean over that like his guard and he would say, he would say, uh, can you, can you, can you? And Kirk started to pick up on some of those signals. And basically he's asking the guard, can you reach the DN? Can you reach him? Oh Cause we're goodness. trying to run a stretch play. Can you reach him? And the guard like will look back and be like, hey, yes or no, or something like that. And so, which was so bizarre to actually actually hear it. Cause I'm like, wow, he's literally out there talking to the offensive players right in front of us and, like, we really don't even know that he's doing it right in front of us. Um, so, uh, so it was, that was definitely an experience to watch him work in person because, like I said, he's one of the best to ever do it. Absolutely.
0: All right, let's move on now. And a few days ago, former Raider defensive end Arden Key was addressing the 49ers media, and he had this to say about his time with the Silver and Black. To, to be honest, I wanted to get out of
1: there. I've been wanting to get out of there. So, um, I wasn't surprised. I was more happy than surprised. Um, I wish it happened a little earlier, but, hey, I got what I wanted, and we're good. You want to get out of there? Say that again? You want to get out of there? It's just bad, bad, bad. I mean, it was just bad all around for me. Um, bad system. It was, it just wasn't the right fit for me, and I had to get out. Did you request a trade or anything like this? No, no, um, just Talking to me and my agent, just trying to get out of there. But didn't
0: request a trade or anything like that. All right, Stan, what are your thoughts on Arden Key's comments? I think that
1: whenever you have a player leave a team, I think fans have to also remember this. How often do you leave your company, your job, and speak highly of them after you leave? How often? (laughs) Like, not often at all. So I think that there needs to be that level of common sense that's just sprinkled into one's evaluation of what he said. Now, obviously, he should not have gone that deep with what he's saying about the Oakland Raiders, I'm sorry, Las Vegas Raiders, but who knows whether things may have gone south as far as his relationship with maybe the head coach, John Gruden, or with Mike Mayock, or even with the owner, Mark Davis, who knows exactly what happened. I think that uh, whenever a player leaves an organization, oftentimes it is not on the Best of terms. It is not mutual. I mean, you look at Tom Brady left the New England Patriots after so many years. And I think that if you actually were to talk to Tom off camera or there's no recorder around, I don't think Tom is going to have every glowing thing to say about Bill Belichick or the New England Patriots. Tom Brady is just more diplomatic than a lot of the younger players who have not realized that yet. So I think that when you really look at everything in its totality, you are not going to have many people that leave a company and they speak highly, or it was left on great terms where I still think of them as a family member, or they're one of my best friends, like that's just human nature, like no, very few people are going to leave an organization, and they're going to, oh my god, you know, they're first class, they're the best ever, and you know, I wish them the best, because I tell you this, I've left teams, and I tell you this, there's coaches that I know of, Now, they didn't do this publicly, but they did this behind closed doors that they went and talked very negatively about me. And obviously, they didn't want that getting back to me, but it did. So it goes both ways because trust me on this. You have certain guys in certain situations, they'll leave a team. And then another team is thinking of signing them. So they will go ahead and call your former team to go ahead and get a little bit of information. Hey, so what type of uh, what type of guy was he? How was he in the locker in the locker room? What type of teammate was he? And there are certain coaches that will throw you all the way under the bus. Not a little bit, they will throw you all the way under the bus. So, as much as Arden Key could have handled that better, but please believe me when I tell you this. There is coaches that trust me. They could go ahead And they could use a little bit of that same improvement of actually not speaking down and i and i mean negatively downright negatively on a certain player whenever he leaves an organization because they do not want said player to go to another team and actually start to have success because then that shines a light on them and how inept they are as a coach because they weren't able to get the same production. So it goes both ways. Arden Key obviously has to do a little bit better with how he goes in and he addresses his former employer because trust me, things like that will come back to bite you later on in life. That's something that he has to go ahead and learn. But nonetheless, trust me on this when I tell you, there's head coaches, there's position coaches, there's GMs, there's owners. They Trust me, they can go ahead and they can use some of that same criticism to go ahead and be better because they do the same damn thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I know Key is far from the first player to complain about how things went with the Raiders. I know LaMarcus Joyner just talked about that as well. He was played out of position, you know, and dealing with Paul Gunther's system. I get all that, Stan. But with that being said, the way Arden performed during his time with the Raiders, I mean, he's got to take some responsibility as well. Absolutely. You know, I was looking at his numbers, Stan, in 37 career games, three sacks, zero forced fumbles, and of course, I mean, who could forget that bonehead play in the waning seconds against the Miami Dolphins when he grabs Miami quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, nearly rips his head off. I watched flagged, I watched that
1: game live, yes. Yeah,
0: gets flagged for a face mask penalty, and it's unnecessary roughness. It helps lead to a Miami game-winning field goal and basically up and smoke with the Raiders. The yeah. Yeah.
1: Not yeah. Just out of the playoff race.
0: Yep. All right, man. Let's uh, let's do a little prediction time now, and how about we pick a Raiders MVP on the offense and defensive side of the ball, and I'm going
1: to let you go first. Okay, I would probably go on the offense side of the ball. I would say Darren Waller by virtue of Derek Carr, because if Darren Waller is going to be a stud this year, like we know he is, and he if he's the offensive MVP, it's going to be because Derek Carr was the one throwing the ball, or possibly Marcus Mariota, who knows but somebody's gonna have to be getting him the ball to go ahead and make the plays that we presume he's gonna be making this year. On the defense side of the ball, I would go with Max Crosby. Uh, my man, I had him on my podcast several months ago. I think he's primed for a breakout year. We saw he had 10 sacks as a rookie. I think he's primed now that he has Ngakwe on the other side not going to be able to slide the protection to him. The Raiders are going to be in some high-scoring games, so they will be going against teams who are throwing the ball, which gives him more ample opportunity to go ahead and affect the game, and I think he's going to do just that. So I look for Max Crosby to have a really big breakout year.
0: All right. Well, you just mentioned him, and I'm going to start with defense because Yannick Ngakwe, hopefully we get used to saying that name over and over because that means he's making a lot of plays. I'm going to go with him as my defensive MVP. I mean, here's a guy who has 45 career sacks, Stan, his lowest sack total he's ever had in one season is eight.
1: Mm -hmm. That would have led the
0: Raiders last year. No
1: doubt about it. I mean, it it really calls into question exactly, and I'm not sure why this is, and I'm not casting any aspersions on him by any stretch of the imagination because I love the fact that he's in black and silver, but it really just makes you wonder, like, why wouldn't jacksonville give him a long-term deal then he goes to the minnesota vikings how come that didn't work then the baltimore ravens so you know you just kind of wonder but yeah i'm right there with you because he's never had a bad season but nonetheless i love the fact that jacksonville could make it work with him the minnesota and baltimore because you know what their loss is now our game exactly
0: now i'm going to add this on the defensive side of the ball and i'm not going to pick him as the mvp but i think the guy who could be the biggest difference maker is second-round pick out of TCU, Trayvon Merrig. Mm-hmm. In college, he had the seven career picks. I think this guy is a prototypical size at safety, 6'2", 200 pounds. And, Stan, you know this. The Raiders have been looking to fill the back end of that defense since Charles Woodson retired.
1: Yes, they have. And I think that they may have just found it in Trayvon Mulrig out of TCU. I liked watching him in college in the Big 12. And I think he's going to go ahead and provide some stability to that back end. Because like I said before, the Raiders are going to be in some games. They're going to be in some high scoring affairs because the offense is high octane, is very potent. So all you need is a defense to go out there and be able to slow the other team down. You don't got to shut them out. It does not have to be some sort of reincarnation of the Legion of Boom with the Seattle Seahawks. All you you got to do is just be how the Kansas City Chiefs were in the Super Bowl in the 2019 season and just simply be serviceable you don't got to be the Chicago Bears of 1985 you don't got to be the steel curtain of the 70s all you got to do is just simply not give up the big play make them go the long hard way and whenever you have your opportunities to get off the field whether it's a sack force fumble whether it is an overthrow by the quarterback it is a fumble force and we got to go ahead and recover the ball any types of situations where we have a chance to get off the field we got to make sure that we capitalize on that and then we'll go ahead and be able to string together some victories and be in this playoff race ben
0: don't break give up field goals instead of touchdowns now on offense well i'm gonna go Derek carr i mean last year he said career mm-hmm. highs and passing yards through 27 touchdowns only nine interceptions he said career high and rushing yards as well and i know that gruden had been imploring him to extend plays with his legs i felt like he did that He's in year four in Gruden's system. And how about this, Dan? This is a little nugget for you. I looked this up. He is the longest-tenured quarterback under John Gruden. Rich Gannon, three years under Gruden in Gruden's first term with the Raiders. And then Mm -hmm. in Tampa, Brad Johnson was two years under Gruden. After that, it was a revolving door. So the fact is that Carr has survived this long under Gruden, to me, says something. And I also feel he's got two more years left on his deal. He's looking for a long-term contract extension. He says he wants to be for a Raider for a lifetime. I think he's primed for a big season. I do.
1: Absolutely. I think that uh, when you look at John Gruden's history of quarterbacks, the majority of them, like you just said, were somebody who was more already 30 plus, somebody who's more of a journeyman or somebody who's been around the league kind of long in the tooth when it comes to their football mortality. And then him picking up on Derek Carr as early as he did in Derek Carr's younger age. I'm not going to say he's young. I'm just going to say he's younger, came out in the 2014 draft, obviously. So Derek Carr has more room to grow. He's got more room to grow with a John Gruden. And I think that Derek Carr's future with the Las Vegas Raiders is incumbent upon this year. Just like what you said, last year had some career highs, but guess what, also got hurt pulling the hamstring in the Thursday night game against the Los Angeles Chargers. And then, so when you look at certain situations like that, if he can go ahead and get this team over the hump, get them to the playoffs like they did back in 2016, but he broke his foot against the Indianapolis Colts that derailed all hopes uh, right then and there. If they can get to the postseason, I think that he's gonna set himself up and acquit himself very nicely as far as everybody within Raider Nation on board with him getting that contract extension and being the Las Vegas Raiders quarterback of the future simply because right now for Derek Carr, as much as I love him, when you look at him as a quarterback, you see all the stats you always add a but whenever you're talking about him agreed oh he's got all these great stats but oh you know the raiders are doing good but oh i think he's really a good quarterback but and i think that if he was to go ahead and get them to the playoffs this year i think he eliminates that but whenever somebody's talking about him all right final topic and this
0: is an interesting one and former nba player jr smith you all remember him played with the cavaliers he has enrolled at North Carolina a and t and he has petitioned the NCAA to play golf. <laughs> now, technically, <laughs> he's eligible, Stan, because he was a guy that went from high
1: school. Straight out of the, high school.
0: Yeah, to the NBA. So, Stan, do you have any eligibility left? And if you went back to, I don't know, Houston, let's say your alma mater wanted to run track and field,
1: <laughs> do
0: you have any eligibility? And how well do you think you'd do?
1: uh for one i might have one year of. Uh, i think you have five years total eligibility when it comes to like doing multiple sports if you do like four years of one you can do one of the other like one year of another sport i think i might have one year of eligibility maybe maybe all right let's just uh, say you
0: do let's just say you do how well would you, you do if you- i
1: wouldn't do well at all i'm 38 years old for crying out loud uh obviously i still keep myself in shape because I work out, I'm still coaching at the high school. So I'm always in the sun. I'm always out there sweating, things like that. But as far as like training professionally or training at the collegiate level, things like that, that's a different level of rigorous training. Back when I was running track in college, I was about 185. I'm about 210 right now. So that's 25 pounds just off of that. Not to mention, I was 195, 200 back when I was playing. So that was a long time and a lot of pounds ago, so it definitely would not be any level of success that I would have if I was to go back to University of Houston and try to run track for another year.
0: Do you ever participate in practice with the kids at the high school level where you're coaching now uh,
1: like a,
0: a player two just to give them an example
1: oh yeah, definitely like uh I, I definitely try to go ahead and 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 walk through, or should I say, personify a certain type of technique that I'm trying to go ahead and implore onto them. Oh yeah, definitely. Just because sometimes for some kids, and even for me, I'm more of a visual type of person. So I got to see it because if you explain it to me, yeah, I can understand it, but there may be something you may leave out in intricate detail. But if I see it, then I know exactly how you want it. So I do my best to try to make sure that all stones are left unturned. I'm sorry, all stones are turned over and no stone left unturned whenever I'm dealing with these kids, just because I'm 38. Like I said, they're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So at the best, I'm 20 years older than uh, than these kids. So I gotta make sure that we are on the same page. I gotta make sure that I can reach them. I wanna make sure that they understand me and I understand them as well. And oftentimes you're gonna have to go ahead and try to at least, Emulate. try to act out something that you're trying to go ahead and show them just so they can abundantly and unequivocally understand exactly what you're saying.
0: Good stuff, man. We hit on a variety of topics on this show. Absolutely, man. Always great, Stan.
1: Great, man. Love it.
0: All right, Raider Nation. That's going to do it for another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast presented by BetOnline.ag. For my partner, Stanford Rouse. I'm Dennis Ackerman. Thanks so much for listening, and may all your punts find the coffin
1: corner. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by.